1: This month we're looking at alcohol addiction. Speaking with someone who's experienced alcoholism for 15 years and finding out how he managed to beat it.
2: I went to old pubs that I used to drink in. I just forced myself to walk in and either just stand in them or occasionally you know I would speak to a couple of people that are still there and just rewrote a, a different memory and walked out and have never been back.
1: And we'll be finding out about a new treatment to help people with addiction and post-traumatic stress disorder. Plus, we find out how virtual reality and treadmills are being combined to map navigation in the brain. We ask how birds fly in a flock and in the news, inducing creativity by electrically tweaking human brains. This is a Naked Neuroscience podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. Kicking off the programme, let's map our way around the brain. Arguably, the most important structure for navigation is the hippocampus. So let's kickstart with some facts about it. The hippocampus is buried deep within your brain. It's shaped like a seahorse, which is why it's called the hippocampus from the Greek meaning curved horse, and there's one hippocampus on each side of the brain, each one just smaller than the size of your curled little finger, and each one packed with about 40 million nerve cells. Each of these cells can be connected with up to 10,000 others. So it's essentially a very complicated circuit board sending spikes of electrical information in the region and to other parts of the brain. Why does it do this? To help you find your way around the world, learn your place in it and let you process where you want to go. But how exactly do all of these cells work together to do this? I spoke to Professor John O'Keefe.
3: What's happening now and what's very exciting in the field is that we're now beginning to gain the tools with an artificial virtual reality environment. We can begin to assess exactly what cues and what stimuli in the environment are causing the cells to fire in particular places. So we're optimistic that in the near future, coupling virtual reality environments to new recording techniques, we'll be able to record from large numbers of cells and to see how the cells are interacting with each other
1: So we've got particular cells and they all seem to work together in order for us to have an idea of where we are and even where we may want to go. What signals are coming into the brain in order to help change the activity of those cells? Are there particular things like reward or pleasure that might affect those cells in the hippocampus?
3: That's a very good question. Um, And there is no simple answer. The hippocampus is located very far away from the sensory inputs and is quite a bit away from the motor outputs. We do know anatomically that it receives information from many different areas of the sensory neocortex. And under certain circumstances, it's been demonstrated that the cells are capable of using any combination of sensory inputs that are available to the animal.
1: And is the hippocampal formation made up of other cells, so not just these navigation cells? Are there other cells in the hippocampus?
3: So that's a contentious question. <laughs> and um, over the years, there have been reports that there are other cell types in the hippocampus. However, if you take the animal, put it into a succession of in different environments, you will find that there are cells in the second environment which didn't respond in the first environment, and there are cells in the third environment which didn't fire in the, uh, respond in the first two environments. So that when you place the animal into a multitude of environments, and uh, certainly by the time you place it into, say, six or seven environments, you will find that the majority of cells in the hippocampus have a place-response-location field in one of those environments.
1: So if the majority of these cells within the hippocampal formation are involved in spatial navigation and people with Alzheimer's, for example, find it very difficult to navigate their way around particularly new environments and they have less connections between cells in the hippocampus Mm -hmm. and they also have cell death in the hippocampus, Mm -hmm. could this be a reason for why?
3: Well, yes, there are two questions, really, that you're asking. One is, what's the relationship between the human hippocampus and the animal hippocampus? And the other is, how much of the human hippocampus is uh, involved in functions similar to, say, those in the, the hippocampus and the rat? And the story isn't a simple one. It's clear that in humans, the hippocampus is involved in other types of memory and other types of processes in addition to spatial processes. Our own thinking, and I guess the simplest way of of characterizing this, is that the human hippocampus is involved in what we would call episodic memory. That is, the memory for what you did at a particular time in a particular place. Our own thinking is that this is an extension of the spatial functions of the animal hippocampus, so that a system which starts off being primarily a spatial memory system has in addition uh, information about the time at which the animal went into the location and what it did in that location. If you put those together, you have the beginnings of what we would call, if we were looking at the, um, the human memory, an episodic memory system. And it's known that one of the first things that goes in patients who are at early stages of Alzheimer's disease is both they have deficits in their navigation ability and also they tend to get lost in familiar environments and also in, in their episodic memory system. So we think that your hypothesis that you could demonstrate a relationship between the uh, the function and the loss of function in the hippocampus and deficits in in spatial and, and more broadly episodic memory is a very good one. We have looked at the, the changes in these cells in a mouse model of, of Alzheimer's disease, and we do, in fact, see that the, the mice, as they get older, not when they're young, but as they get older, they show changes in their spatial memory ability and that these changes are very highly correlated with changes in the function of the hippocampal place cells and also, incidentally, with the accumulation of, of plaque burden, the typical Alzheimer plaque burden which is seen in patients with Alzheimer's disease.
1: That was Professor John O'Keefe from University College London. Next up, I took some of your questions on navigation to hippocampal researcher Dr Hugo Spears from University College London. Firstly, Dave Collier asked, Is our sense of direction nature, so genetics, or nurture, so environment? He wonders, did his childhood spent with his head stuffed in books permanently destroy his ability to find his way around? So, could that be true? It's
4: an interesting question, it's always very difficult to uh, dissect nature and nurture. You know There's bound to be some genes that regulate how we navigate, you know, our sort of innate sense of ability to pick up on landmarks and our ability to determine how far we've traveled and all those sorts of things to some extent must be part of our, our nature. But as we grow up in certain cultures, you know if you imagine growing up in an urban city with lots of street signs versus growing up in the Kalahari desert, you're going to learn very different abilities of sense of direction and ability to use the environment. So nurture must come into it, but the extent to which nature and nurture play off is, is very hard to get at.
1: And I believe that you are involved in some work with Eleanor Maguire looking at taxi drivers and their ability to navigate their way around you know, really complicated, convoluted roadway systems in London, for example, and how their brain might have changed as a result of the training, the experience of navigating their way through London?
4: Uh, it was fascinating when Ellen and Maguire discovered that uh, London licensed taxi drivers, the ones that drive the black cabs, actually have an enlarged posterior hippocampus and a shrunken uh, anterior hippocampus as part of the job. So if you compare their brain structure to um, a normal healthy person who's not a taxi driver, she found there was these differences. Um, the posterior end that the taxi drivers seem to expand has had a long history of being linked towards specifically to spatial navigation. And so it was fascinating to see that the longer they had driven a taxi in London, the larger their hippocampus became. It's interesting to see it expand physically, but what is it actually used? We presume it's involved in spatial navigation, but we're quite keen to tie down when. Um, so to do that, we, we got hold of a simulation of London which was available at that time on the PlayStation 2. It was a game called The Getaway to simulate the experience of driving through London, right across through and out central London, immersively. Um, And so we were able to have London taxi drivers drive through and do the job they do on a regular basis, but in a controlled virtual setting. Because it was on on a computer screen, we could also examine what was going on inside their brain while they were driving using functional netted resonance imaging. So what we found doing that is that the taxi drivers really use their hippocampus maximally when they are first thinking about where to go. When you get in a taxi and you give a a taxi driver a destination, that's when they'll be using their hippocampus. But once they've done that, uh, and they they say this themselves, our our neuroimaging data backed up what they had to say, they kind of switch off. They don't really think. They go into automatic pilot, uh, and they just get you there. Other bits of the brain sort of take over and do all sorts of fine-tuning and so on. What we found, the hippocampus was really key in that initial moment of planning a route.
1: So going back to Dave Collier's point, it may be that he could exercise his hippocampi by um, testing himself with new navigation and new routes.
4: That's right. There is some evidence. Dave left his books and went off and played a video game, in fact, or went out of his office, perhaps even better, had to navigate through a new bit of city or environment possible he might expand his hippocampus as a consequence.
1: And next question, Paul Harrington has been in touch, asking about murmuration. He'd be really keen to understand it a bit more. So when he looks at the starlings in the sky, as one neighbour of the starling flock will move, the other will too. But how do these flocks seem to coordinate this movement en masse so gracefully and so beautifully?
4: Paul's right to ask about it. It's really interesting. If you think about animals navigating they do, as they travel over the earth from one point to another, they do have to synchronize their movements so they don't knock each other out of the air. But it's less of a navigation issue, more of a coordinated visuomotor problem. But I guess the key thing is, how do they know that the bird at the front is going in the right direction? It's a bit like a voting system, right, to make the flock go in the right direction. There must be something going on there. Very hard to study, certainly very hard to get at the neuroscience of how the brain does that.
1: Thanks, Hugo. And if you've got any burning questions about your brain and the nervous system, just email them to neuroscience at scientists.com. You can tweet us at Naked Neuroscience or you can post on our Facebook page and we'll do our best to answer them for you. Next up, we visit PhD student David Weston from Cambridge University for his top neuroscience stories for the month.
5: So the first paper I want to talk about ties into the theme of navigation. So researchers from the University of Toronto have just published evidence that playing action-based video games can improve your ability to navigate your environment, and specifically your ability to pick out features in a crowd. So Ian Spence and his colleagues in the Journal of Attention, Perception and Psychophysics showed that people who played action video games like Call of Duty or Counter-Strike, so-called first-person shooter games, for at least four hours a week for the previous six months, were much faster at finding specific objects in a typical visual search task compared to people who didn't play video games. And these first-person shooter players were way more accurate at identifying objects in their peripheral vision when taking on tasks in their central vision.
1: And what kind of objects were the participants looking for?
5: Well, they were given a very specific visual task, so they were presented with rectangles or boxes on a visual field, and they were supposed to identify if a particular box was rotated or if it was in a different colour. So these are kind of very abstract tasks that they were given.
1: I mean, I don't play video games at all, but I think I'm quite good at finding boxes should I need to find some boxes. So what meaning has this finding got for real-world situations?
5: So the results showed that even after only 10 hours of video game training, they could get participants to improve their ability to find objects within these visual searching tasks. So the theory is that in kind of complex searching situations, so for example looking at an MRI scan, we could use video game training to show people how to look for specific objects within a particular picture. And this could have real-world implications, such as being able to look at an X-ray and find something wrong, or be able to look at an MRI scan, or even look for a hidden weapon in an X-ray.
1: Oh, that's great. Thanks, David. So, my top paper for the month has been published in the Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience by Sharon Thompson-Shill and her friends at the University of Pennsylvania. So, they did this really quite neat experiment. They took 48 volunteers. In fact, actually, David, I'm going to make you one of the volunteers for this experiment. I'm going to present you with an everyday object. I'm going to ask you to tell us what it is and what you would do with it. And then I want you to think outside the box and just off the top of your head tell me other things that you could do with this particular object ready so I'm presenting David with a picture of I'm going to turn around the piece of paper now David what is this and what do you do with it
5: it's a rolling pin and I guess you bake with it (laughs) Um, that's the kind of conventional task I guess and so what else could you use it for outside the kitchen well, you could hit someone over the head with it. You could use it as a rounders bat. If you heated it up, you could use it as an iron. If you if it's made of wood, you could burn it and have it as a source of heat.
1: So, would you say that you're creative?
5: I don't know, not really. I'm very I find it very difficult to come up with those out-of-the-box solutions right on the spot there like
1: that. But I came up with some reasonable ones, I think. Yeah, I think you did pretty well there. Yeah. So what the researchers that published this paper wanted to do was they wanted to find out if they could make people more creative, so come up with more out-of-the-box creative ways of using that rolling pin or other devices. And so in order to foster creativity in their volunteers, they decided to apply a small electric current, so 1.5 thousandths of an amp of current, to the left side of their brains, and they also had a control group where they applied the same current to the right side of the front of the brain... And also a control group, so they just had a very small electric stimulus right in the middle, just for a very small amount of time. So why would you want to look at the left versus the right side of the brain? Yeah, so they were stimulating the prefrontal cortex, so the bit just behind your forehead that's involved in cognitive thought. So, you know, learning, reasoning, planning, flexibility and thought. And the left side of the brain, the left hemisphere, is thought to be involved in more linear kind of thought. And the right side is thought to be involved in more kind of global kind of creative thinking. So what did the researchers find from this experiment? Well, amazingly, they did see quite a dramatic increase in the creativity as measured by the task that we just demonstrated when they were applying a small inhibitory electrical current to the left side of the brain. So by inhibiting the left prefrontal cortex, they actually fostered more creativity in these volunteers. Excellent. That's really interesting. So do you think we should all wander around with little uh, electrical thought caps on our heads when we need to be creative? Maybe. And
5: I was thinking a lot of kind of companies seem to value people who can think outside the box. So it'd be interesting to see what the implications of this kind of research would have on how people view creativity and whether you can force somebody to be creative when they don't think they are.
1: Yeah, maybe teachers could bring it in in um, art classes.
5: (laughs) Yeah, it'd certainly make me better at art, I think.
1: And what's your final paper?
5: So my final paper is about finding the human GPS system. And a group of scientists at Princeton University have been trying to work towards understanding exactly how the brain decodes where we think we are in our environment. So David Tank and his team have been focusing on the medial entorhinal cortex, which is an area of the brain within the hippocampal formation that has previously been shown to be associated with the way in which we map our physical space. And within this area, we find these neurons called grid cells that fire electrical signals at particular places within the space that you're in. The most remarkable feature of these cells is that they form a pattern of activation that looks like a hexagonal spaces on a Chinese checkers board. So a single grid cell will fire when you occupy a specific hexagon within a room, for example. So there have been two competing theories about how these grid cells can electrically encode the physical landscape that you're in. And the first one was called the oscillatory interference model. And this proposed that individual grid cells produce these oscillations in their electrical activity. And that informs you of where you are. And there's a competing theory, the attractor model, that suggests that ramping electrical patterns of grid cells, which communicate with each other, are responsible for the positional information.
1: So how did they try and test which of these theories was actually the correct one then?
5: by taking electrical recordings of mice navigating a virtual reality environment. So what they did was they popped these mice onto a treadmill and presented them with a kind of virtual reality 3D environment and got them to navigate through, all the while recording these responses from their brains. And although they found that both the oscillations and the ramps were present in these cells the ramping electrical activity, which is consistent with the second hypothesis, was much more reliable in predicting positional information. So this really gives strong support to the attractor model.
1: OK, so why is this important?
5: Well, the findings are so important because they give us some insight into an understanding exactly how the complex patterns of electrical activity in the brain actually coordinate and give us reliable and accurate information about the ways in which we can interact with the world.
1: And all this done with little mice on treadmills in 3D virtual reality.
5: Yeah, you can actually go onto YouTube and there are videos of these mice doing these little virtual interactive tasks, so it's really interesting to see.
1: Exciting news. That was David Weston from Cambridge University. And if you want to find out more about any of those stories, the references are all on our website. That's thenakedscientists.com forward slash neuroscience. Next, moving to the back of a bus where I'm returning from the Royal Albert Hall with a Cambridge-based music charity that I volunteer with, having just performed live as part of a series of concerts to help de mental health issues. I'm speaking with one of the anonymous lead vocalists about his experiences with addiction, a condition that also involves the hippocampus.
2: Um, I was discovered alcohol at 15 and it seemed to turn the lights on in my head and it done everything that I wanted it to do. It gave me confidence, it enabled me to talk to people. At first it was just going to pubs, just like everybody else, socializing, and it was fun. It led to 27 hospital visits, 17 detox visits, uh, various psychiatric evaluations. It eventually led to me throwing up four pints of blood Uh, because I had the blood vessels in my throat burst. I remember coming back from that experience. I went back to Alcoholics Anonymous, and for the first time I opened my ears and I listened. I sat and I listened and um, discovered the reasons why I was doing what I was doing. To old pubs that I used to drink in I just forced myself to walk in and either just stand in them or occasionally you know I would speak to a couple of people that are still there and just rewrote a a different memory and walked out and have never been back.
1: Next we meet up with a scientist to find out about a new treatment for addiction and post-traumatic stress disorder.
6: I'm Barry Everett. I'm a Professor of Behavioural Neuroscience in the Department of Experimental Psychology at the University of Cambridge.
1: Hello Barry. So we've just been talking to somebody who experienced quite severe addiction for a number of years and he spoke about overcoming his addiction and rewriting the script as it were. So removing associations that he had, whether it be particular environments, particular social situations with his addiction to alcohol. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the research that's going on in this area of rewriting the script in your brain.
6: Yes, and that's an interesting thing that this person has done. So when people begin taking drugs and then make a transition to becoming addicted to them, what happens is generally they take their drugs in a very ritualistic way, in in a very restricted range of environments, and in the presence of rather few specific stimuli that are related to their drug taking. Obviously for drinking alcohol it's often in bars and with certain people and it's true for people taking cocaine as well. They have certain kinds of equipment that they use in certain places, sometimes with certain people, and quite naturally those stimuli become associated with the effects of taking the drug or drinking alcohol through a learning process that we've known about for well over 100 years called Pavlovian conditioning, and everybody remembers about his dogs and bells and salivation. So a restricted range of otherwise innocuous stimuli in the environment become alcohol cues or cocaine cues or heroin cues. Now, it turns out what we've come to understand from our work and others in a clinical situation is those stimuli become very, very significant in the course of addiction because they can evoke craving.
1: So somebody may have um, gotten over the physiological addiction to the particular drug and then after that there's a second wave where they have to get over this association with the habit.
6: Yeah. In fact, you don't ever really unlearn those associations, except recent research has suggested that it might be possible to unlearn their meaning. Now, this has kind of been known for many years in some treatment centres for addiction, where clinicians have used something called Q-exposure therapy. So here what happens is that people seeking to become abstinent, for example, to stop drinking, go into the clinic through... Questioning and discussion, their particular cues are identified and those are presented repeatedly but without alcohol. And this is what the person you were describing earlier has been doing by visiting places where he used, used to drink but hasn't drunk. And so you keep repeating over and over again presentation of these cues and it turns out that they elicit less and less and less craving, whether you measure that in terms of how people feel or you measure some objective physiological measure like their heart rate or their uh, skin conduction, a measure of sort of sweating on the palms. And this process in psychology is called extinction. Now that's all well and good, but it turns out that extinction is very context or situation dependent. So if you bring someone into the clinic, extinguish those cues so that they're not responding to them, when they go back out into the real world and encounter those same cues, but in the context in which they're normally present, you find they haven't been extinguished at all. So it's not a very successful treatment.
1: So it's a bit like taking someone into the clinic and presenting them maybe with some beer bottles or particular advertising associated with alcohol, um, which is a very different situation to meeting up with your friends on a Friday night in a restaurant where there's wine or there's beer available.
6: Exactly so. So how do you get over that? A couple of things have happened recently which have suggested that the memories elicited by drug-associated stimuli, drug cues, can indeed be erased and this, this was a big surprise when it was appreciated in, in about 2000. When you retrieve a memory, in the point where the memory is active again, and in the case of drugs, when the cue has elicited your memories of drinking and caused you to crave, that memory becomes labile in a new, active, and transient state in the brain, neurochemically. It has to be restabilized in the brain. It turns out through another round of, of protein synthesis in cells in the brain. And that's kind of but not exactly the same as the process that would have occurred when those memories are being formed in the first place. So we talk about consolidating new learning to form memories, and this process where the memory becomes plastic and must be restabilized again at retrieval is called reconsolidation.
1: And so that reconsolidation of the memory That point when the memory is quite labile and quite plastic may be a point where therapeutically you could intervene and start some kind of treatment to dissociate that habit, that association with the drug.
6: Exactly right. Now, it turns out that a very common drug used to treat hypertension, propranolol, which is a beta receptor blocker, can block that reconsolidation, that restabilization process. So if you retrieve a memory in the presence of a beta receptor blocker and then come back and look a day or a week or a month later, you find that memory has been erased. Now that's been translated to a clinical setting in the case of post-traumatic stress disorder. People who are greatly affected by um, horrific and intrusive memories of terrible events like war or Accidents or rape. And it turns out if you retrieve the memory under beta receptor blockade, not just once but two or three times, there's an enormous reduction in the intrusiveness of the memory and people are much less bothered by it. Now, that particular approach to treatment hasn't yet been applied to drug addiction, but it's something we're planning to do here in an alcohol study.
1: And how do you make sure that you're not going to be erasing any other memories at the same time whilst administering this beta blocker? Because that must be a, a bit of a concern that you would erase a person's memory
6: like the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. That's one of those fears that people always bring up, but actually the conditions under which you can make the memory labile and can influence it are incredibly precisely defined. So you would only ever be able to modulate a memory by focusing on the conditions specific to that memory and reactivating it.
1: And which areas of the brain are these memories, these associations, being affected by the beta blockers?
6: The amygdala, which is well known to be uh, associated with emotional learning and memory, is certainly the case for drug cue and fear cue memories, but also the hippocampus, which is much more to do with spaces and places in, and contextual memories.
1: That was Professor Barry Everett from Cambridge University. And closing this month's show, Professor Fred Gage from the Salk Institute, California, describes what's been keeping him up all night. Fred also researches the hippocampus, looking at a specific area of it called the dentate gyrus. This region is one of the few brain areas that continues to get new brain cells being born throughout
7: life. One of the things that I find remarkable is that there are differences, individual differences, between neurons of the same brain structure. So here we're talking about the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus, and at first pass, it looks like all these cells are exactly the same. And then in another area of the hippocampus called the CA1, there are pyramidal neurons, and they look all the same. But if you go in and record from those cells individually, or you go look at the expression patterns of RNA, or even if you look at the DNA of those cells, they're different, small differences. And the next wave of, of interest, I predict, will be looking at these individual differences that occur between individual neurons within the brain.
1: That was Professor Fred Gage from the Salk Institute, California. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month to pay attention to ADHD. So, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. This Naked Neuroscience podcast has been brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. And there are more neuroscience podcasts available with full transcripts, so check out the website, it's the Naked Scientists Forward Slash Neuroscience. See you next month to open our minds.